Good morning. Uh, I got one announcement to make before we do the scripture readings, and it'll be very short. Uh, the women's winter luncheon is this coming Saturday, and today is the last day to sign up for it. So there is a table out here in the foyer with some ladies sitting at it after this after the service. Um, be sure if you are interested in attending that luncheon that you sign up today. It's got to be today. All right, we're going to read from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. This passage is amazing. Romans 8, beginning at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would open up our eyes this morning to behold the magnitude of all that You have done for us in Christ Jesus. We ask that You would do this that we might live today as those who overwhelmingly conquer through You who loved us. And we ask this in the name of the One who made that love ours, Jesus Christ. Amen. What is it in your life that gives you the greatest sense of well-being or security? And we have all kinds of different answers to that question, and some of them sound more spiritual than others. But it seems to me that the honest answer to that question comes in the answer to a slightly different question. And that is, what is it that causes you the most fear and the most anxiety? If you want to know what a person truly considers to be the true source of security or well-being, first find out what he or she fears as the greatest threat. And then, if you look at the opposite of that, you'll understand what it is that they're looking to as the source of well-being. If you know what makes a person feel safe, you 
you will, if you want to know what makes a person feel safe, first figure out what makes them feel unsafe. And then his sense of safety will come from being on the other side of that threat. Now, if a man has a mortal fear that he will finish his life in poverty, then he'll find great satisfaction and comfort in hoarding up a bunch of money and seeing to it that there's no way he can lose it. Now, this approach that directly connects the source of threat or harm with the source of well-being is actually not far removed from what we find in Scripture. In Jeremiah 10 and Isaiah 41, as well as other passages in which God confronted the Israelites because of their fear of, of idols, their misplaced fear of idols... Anyone get that on video? (laughs) Jeremiah 10, Isaiah 41. God said in essence, Why do you fear these gods of wood and stone who can do no harm to you, nor can they do any good? And his point was that the only one truly worthy of Israel's fear is the one who alone can do real harm or real good. See, from a biblical perspective, if you understand how to be on the good side of whatever situation or person can actually do you harm or good, that's when you know how you can have genuine well-being. So what is it that you see as the greatest threat? Is it losing control over your finances? Is it the extent to which the institutions of government or higher education or media have turned and now stand against the things that you hold as most dear? Is it conflicts that you face in your marriage or possibility, uh, possibly the likelihood that uh, one of your children is going to make such bad decisions that he'll put himself in serious peril? Or perhaps for some of you it's the threat of life-threatening illness like cancer for you or for someone you love. Well, if you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then whatever it is that you may presently fear as a threat to your well-being, the reality is God is the one who alone is able to do you true harm or true good. And He intends for you to have an unshakable confidence in His promises and in His perfect plan and purposes as they relate to you. Purposes that no one and nothing can ever possibly undo. Purposes that ensure your well-being beyond a shadow of a doubt. Last week, we saw Paul give us the first part of that encouragement. Talk about the first pieces of that great confidence that we have. We saw in verses 26 to 28 that Paul presented the confidence we have as children of God in the intercession of the Holy Spirit on our behalf in the midst of our prayers. The Holy Spirit who knows our hearts better than we know them ourselves and who knows the mind of God perfectly takes our imperfect prayers and He renders them perfect before God. 
so that there is absolutely nothing lacking in our prayers. Is that amazing? I, I think that is amazing. And then he re- reminded us of God's promise that even though we don't really know how we should pray, the God to whom we pray works all things together for good. As He defines good, not as we define it. And that means He works all things together in a way that glorifies His holy name. And then, amazingly, we end up being the beneficiaries. Because that which glorifies God blesses those who belong to God. In verses 29 and 30, Paul told us about the cause we had for unshakable confidence regarding God's perfect plan of redemption. A plan that began in eternity past when God foreknew us and predestined us to become conformed to the image of His Son. And it began in our experience when He called us out to be His own and He justified us, declaring us righteous with the righteousness not our own but with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Paul made it clear that whom God justified, He also glorified. God will complete the work that He began in us. He will conform us to Christ in deed and in full. And we will stand spotless and blameless in His presence. And he makes it clear, as Paul Paul makes it clear as he laid out this this progression of God's plan of redemption, that of those whom God foreknew in eternity past to become His children, He will lose not one until all have been glorified. That's real security. This week, today, we get to see the rest of Paul's call to us to have confidence in the amazing grace and faithfulness of God toward us as His children. Indeed, in the love that God has for us as His children. First, in verses 31 to 34, we see that God is for us. And that because He is for us, no one and nothing can ever stand against us. And then in verses 35 to 39, Paul lays out for us that nothing in all of God's creation can possibly separate us from God's love which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. First, verses 31 and 34, uh, 31 to 34, our confidence that God is for us. Now, Paul starts in verse 31 with the question, what then shall we say to these things? And then he says, if God is for us, who is against us? Now, that question, what shall we say to these things, is a recurring question in the epistle to the Romans. It's, it's already popped up about five times before this, and I've got the list of verses if you want to see them. You can go back and find them easily. He either uses the question, what then shall we say to these things, or just sometimes he uses a very abbreviated form, what then? And then he immediately follows it with another question. And that second question distills his point. It shows us exactly what he's getting at. Before we look at the second question, To what things is Paul referring here when he says, what shall we say to these things? Well, based on 
what he's already told us and what he's about to tell us, I believe that the things to which he is referring is all of the amazing blessings that belong to us as those have been, who have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, it's everything he's been talking about since the beginning of chapter 5. When he said, having been justified, we now have. And then he started his list. That includes our reconciliation and peace with God. It includes the hope of glory that God has set before us. The certainty that that hope endures and never disappoints, even in the midst of great tribulation. It includes our freedom from slavery to sin. Our unity with Christ in the likeness of His death and resurrection. Our new slavery, that blessed slavery to God and to righteousness. It includes the victory of the Holy Spirit who dwells within our inner man over the sin that continues to dwell in our flesh. It includes our adoption as sons, our shared inheritance with Christ. It includes the perfect intercession of the Holy Spirit in the midst of our prayers. It includes the uninterrupted and uninterruptible process of redemption by which God moves us from calling to justification to glorification for all those whom He foreknew in eternity past and predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. (laughs) That's a lot, isn't it? In essence, Paul's saying, what then shall we say in light of all these miraculous things that God has made true of us in Jesus Christ? And then he immediately follows with the second question that goes to the heart of our beautiful situation as those who have been justified. He says, if God is for us, who is against us? Now, it's not really a a question, it's a declaration. See, he's not saying, if it happens to be that God is for us. No, he's saying, because God is for us in light of all that we've just been looking at, in light of all that he's said, who can possibly be against us? Now, what does it mean to say that God is for us? That's a very important question, isn't it? Does it mean that if I'm a Christian, God will see to it that my business thrives? That He'll make sure that I'm at the top of my game in my profession? Does it mean that my health will always be good? That my children will always be happily obedient? That my cars will never break down at an inconvenient moment? (laughs) I once read, a a, a, many years ago, read a feel-good article in a newspaper about a a weather, a TV weatherman who was an evangelical Christian. And in the interview with this journalist who was writing the article, this weatherman basically said to the guy, because of my faith in Jesus Christ, I believe I have an advantage when it comes to predicting the weather. And I think they, if they probably did a statistical analysis on that, they'd find that that doesn't, didn't hold up. Is that how this works? Does the fact that God is for us mean that we have some kind of advantage over the curse of the fall when compared with all the rest of mankind? Does it mean that our lives will be easier? That the opposition that we face from this world will be lighter? Because we are the children of God? (laughs) If you listen to, to quite a bit of what's being preached today, 
And you know what? If you pay attention to the content of many of our prayers, you, you might come to the conclusion that when God says He's for us, that means He's committed to the things that we desire. That He's on our side. That He's with our agenda. That He feels our pain and that He's committed to putting it to an end as quickly as possible. But of course, if you pay attention to what Paul has been saying, there is no possibility at all that that's what he means. He's already made it crystal clear that suffering is part and parcel of the normal Christian life. He's made it clear that there is no way in God's plan that we can lay hold of our inheritance as fellow heirs with Christ if we do not first share in the sufferings of Christ. We can't lay hold of His inheritance without fighting His battles. My dear sister Sharon reminded me this week that David got into such trouble because he stayed home at the time when kings go out to battle. We have to fight His battles in order to enter into our inheritance. So what does Paul mean when he says God is for us? Well, as we've just seen, Paul gave us a wealth of evidence in the last several chapters to explain to us in what way God is for us. And now in verse 32, he goes to the one single event on which all of the promises of God depend. He goes to the perfect proof that God is for us. And that proof is the cross. He said, what, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And then he says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Now, if Paul said nothing more in all of chapters 5-8 through 8 than that which he says in verse 32, we'd have all the proof that we will ever need that God is for us in the most marvelous sense of those words. Paul's words here hearken back to what he said in chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, which my brother Eugene pointed out this morning in the worship. You want to know how to know that God loves you? Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. <laughs> My brother Bob pointed out a long time ago that in John 3.16, when it says God so loved the world, it means God loved the world in this way. That He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Paul says, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he says, much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. And then he makes a second round of the same idea, essential idea. He says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. The logic in these two passages is this, essentially the same. If we know the amazing good that God has already accomplished 
for us at the cross, then how can we not believe that He is doing good for us now and will do good for us in the future? If God, knowing the magnitude and the heinousness of our sin, knowing that we were His enemies, did not spare His own Son, but instead delivered Him up to death in our place so that we could have life, then how could there be any possibility that He will not also freely give us all other things that constitute genuine good? This is a very straightforward argument from the greater to the lesser. If God was willing to do the greatest good of all toward us who deserve the greatest bad, (laughs) then how could we possibly think that He won't take care of us in all other matters? And in particular, how can we possibly think that God would allow His gracious purposes toward us to be derailed by things that are merely temporary? How could He allow the difficulties of this present existence to rob us of His amazing grace? of His boundless love that He proved to us at the cross. (laughs) What's astounding is that this irrefutable line of reasoning seems to be completely lost on many believers. Anxiety and anger and self-pity and depression seem to be rampant among those who call themselves believers in Jesus Christ. How is it that we live as if God had done nothing for us yet? As if (laughs) there is any doubt that God will do good for us now and in the future. If the greatest foolishness on the part of men is to reject Jesus Christ and what He did for us at the cross, then the second greatest foolishness is for us to behold the incomparable good that Jesus did for us at the cross and then to ever think there's any question that He is for us in anything else that matters. It's utter foolishness. It makes no sense. And the only way that we can possibly sustain this fearful way of thinking is if we diminish what Christ did for us at the cross. Do you doubt the love of God toward you? He proved it already. Beyond any shadow of a doubt, while you were still His enemy. Do you doubt that God is now acting or will act in the future to bless you rather than to curse you? Then you've lost sight of the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if you had not lost sight of it, then there's no possible way that you could entertain such nonsense. Fear and resentment and self-pity and depression and unforgiveness cannot be maintained in the heart of a believer who clearly sees what he has already been given by God. Now, I know about crippling self-destructive depression. I was there before. And I know that some people may need some help to lay hold of God's cure. But the cure remains the same. The beautiful light of confidence and contentedness and peace 
comes only in truly knowing what you have been given by God. How is it that we are such great students of what we don't have and such lousy students of what we've already been given? In terms of the time and energy that we invest, we should all have doctorates by now in the detailed analysis of what we think we should have and don't. But we're like kindergartners sometimes when it comes to the committed, focused attention on what we've already been given in Jesus Christ. (laughs) And of how absolutely undeserving we are of that gift. How can we who have been forever reconciled to God because of the cross of Christ not be convinced that God is for us? How can that be? In verses 33 and 34, Paul moves from the proof that God is for us to the proof that no one and nothing can be against us. He says in verse 33, uh, he presents two questions in these verses. First, who will bring a charge against God's elect? And then, who is the one who condemns? Verse 33 He says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? And you know what? His answer is completely unexpected. And it's masterfully effective to both of these questions. See, he very intentionally does not directly answer either of the two questions. Now think for a moment. When you hear the question, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Where does your mind go? Well, mine starts to go to all the different things I know about in the world that seek to bring a charge against me and against my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We know some of them from Scripture. Revelation 12, verse 10, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And we know that he has many instruments in this world who are eager to corroborate his accusations against us And it's become infinitely clear, especially in recent times, that we who stand for the truth of God have become the enemies of our culture. We're the intolerant hate mongers. We're the ones who constitute a mortal threat to the things that this culture holds dear. Things like a mother's so-called freedom to end the life of the baby in her womb for the sake of convenience. Things like the right of consenting adults to enjoy sexual intimacy with whomever they will, whenever they will, pretty much wherever they will. You may have heard the name of Christopher Hitchens. He's not around anymore. He was a brilliant and very, very articulate man. He was very vocal and he was very direct about the fact as he saw it, that Christians and other dogmatic religious types were responsible for most of the wars and pretty much all of the hate and bigotry and intolerance that exists in the world. And the line of respected men and women who are willing to paint Christians with that brush is becoming longer and longer. There is no doubt 
that the accusations that will be leveled against God's children will will continue to become ever more strident and they will gain more teeth as time goes on. And by teeth, I mean actual persecution, loss of livelihood, loss of freedom, and for some, loss of life. The very things that Christians in so many parts of the world have already been experiencing for a very long time. But you know what? Paul doesn't entertain any of those accusations or threats in his answer to the question, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Instead, he simply says, God is the one who justifies. Now, Paul tends to be wordy sometimes, right? But he's not wordy here. He cuts right to the chase, and here's what I think he's doing. Who is it who has both the right and the reason to bring a charge against God's elect? Well, there's only one, and that's God. Paul already spelled out at the beginning of chapter 2 that any man who seeks to bring a charge against another man is already guilty of the very thing that he's charging, and that makes him a hypocrite. But God has every right and every reason to accuse us. He sees and He knows the wickedness in our hearts far more clearly than we do. And yet, instead of accusing us, He's the one who justifies us. He gives us the gift that we could never deserve. And if the only one who has the holiness that qualifies Him to accuse us has instead declared us perfectly righteous at the cost of His own Son's lifeblood, then how can anyone else's accusation ever matter to us? I believe that's what Paul's getting at. In verse 34, he He takes the same essential approach. He says, who is the one who condemns? (laughs) Again, there's no question that there are many around us who are eager to condemn us who bear the name of Jesus Christ. But there is only one who is both qualified and able to condemn us. In Matthew 10.28, Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body, (laughs) but are unable to kill the soul. He said, but rather... Fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. But in the very next breath, He said, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear you are of more value than many sparrows. (laughs) Paul makes the same essential point here in Romans 8.34. Who is it that has the justification and the ability to truly condemn us? God alone. But look at his answer. Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. There has only ever been one man who did not sin. And that's the perfect man and perfect God, Jesus Christ. There is only one man who can condemn others without hypocrisy. And yet He is the one who not only saved us, but now advocates for us. When the accuser of the brethren hurls his accusations against us, 
Jesus is the one who says, no, that one is mine. I became sin for him that he might become the righteousness of God in me. So your words of condemnation against that one are of no consequence to God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how Paul started chapter 8. And beloved, if no one can condemn us in the sight of our holy God, then surely we cannot condemn each other, nor should we be condemned in our own eyes. If you suffer from self-hatred, put it away, because it makes you greater than the God who justified you. And by the way, knowing what we deserve and what we have been given by God, entirely resolves any foundation for unforgiveness that we might bear toward one another. How can you who deserved only condemnation fail to forgive your brother or sister whom God has justified? In verses 35 to 39, Paul goes to the last bit of evidence that we have great cause for confidence. And that evidence, that declaration is that no one and nothing can separate us from the love of God. He says, not only are we not condemned by God, we're loved by God. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he presents a list. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril? Or sore. And then he says, just as it is written. And he quotes Psalm 44, verses 23 to 26, or verse 22, and that is, For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, if you go back and look at that Psalm, Psalm 44, you see that right after that statement, the psalmist laments to God, and he says, Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up. Be our help and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. Now, both the psalmist and Paul, I believe, are talking about the suffering that we endure because we are the covenant children of God. And that suffering goes beyond just persecution for faithfully declaring the truth of God. Paul mentions famine, and you'd have a hard time putting famine in the category of persecution. Now, both Paul and the psalmist, I believe, are including here all forms of tribulation that we face as children of God. And I believe the reason Paul quotes the psalmist from Psalm 44 is to make it clear that God knows how things appear to us. He knows that there are times when we see the grievous suffering and pain that surrounds us and times when we personally experience great distress and tribulation and we feel as if God has turned His face away from us. But Paul tells us that in such times and in all times, things are radically different than they appear. 
in the very next verse, he says, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. And then in case we missed his point and we think that God has left anything at all in man's experience out of this great promise, Paul ratchets up his list of potential threats against us in verses 38 and 39 to the highest possible level. Now look at that passage. Look at verses 38 and 39 for a minute and tell me if he's leaving anything out of that list. Is there anything in our experience that's not covered in that list? The answer is no. He says, no created thing can undo God's love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is it that causes us to question God's love for us in spite of the irrefutable evidence that He has provided that nothing can separate us from His love? What makes us so quick to doubt His steadfast covenant love? I believe the answer is pretty simple. Our fear is in the wrong place. Whatever you believe will cause you the greatest harm or the greatest good, that is what you fear. And that is what will consume your attention. It's because we do not ascribe that fear and that honor to God alone that we end up fixing our attention on things that we do believe can cause us harm or good. We act so often as if it's our full-time job to orchestrate our lives so that we never really have to suffer things like tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Because those are the things that we fear. We've let ourselves be persuaded by the lie that says blessing and well-being are found in the opposite of those things. And so we expend vast amounts of energy and effort trying to hoard enough money to avoid any financial threat. Or as good Southerners, we stock up on our guns and ammunition so that we can fend off any threat to the things that are sacred to us and to our self-insured security. Now, any of you that know me personally know I'm a big, a big fan of the Second Amendment. So don't get me wrong here. My point is simply that we must never live under the illusion that a bank account or a gun or any such thing it will ever be the source of security and well-being to us or to our families. Those kinds of things may be instruments, but they'll never be the source. God can and will provide for us who belong to Him with or without any given instrument. It's perfectly fine for us to apply common sense to acting as the agents of God. We're supposed to. And what I mean is acting as the agents of God for His provision, even for us, even for ourselves and for our families. Isn't that why we get up and go to work every day? Because we're acting as God's agents or instruments of provision. That's part of dominion. But we will never be the source of God's provision. That's God's job alone. And we need to be very clear that the full extent of any benefit that we receive through our own efforts 
is roughly equivalent to the benefit of having a good tool in your toolbox. From our perspective, some tools look way better than others. (laughs) But from the perspective of the God who created all things out of nothing, the tool is inconsequential. He doesn't need it at all, even when He chooses to use it. God is our only source. He is our only protector and provider. And even though He has already given us infinitely more than we will ever deserve, indeed the opposite of what we deserve, He nonetheless promises that we will spend the rest of eternity plumbing the depths of the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. How great is that? (laughs) That's in Ephesians 2, verse 7. If it was foolish for Abraham to think he had to lie to Pharaoh about Sarah's identity in order to keep the covenant promises of God intact, (laughs) then how foolish is it for us who have the fullness of God's revelation and who know what Jesus Christ did for us at the cross to think that we can add anything to God's flawless provision for those who are His children. We act sometimes as if well-being is found in the opposite of tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. But God says, God says, well-being is found in the midst of those things, not in the avoidance of those things. He tells us that the things the world fears with a mortal fear, a consuming fear, are no threat to us at all because of the love of God that can never be taken away from us. Beloved, freedom from conflicts and relationships does not constitute well-being. The certainty that your retirement nest egg will not be snatched up or broken, does not constitute well-being. Jesus said in Luke 12.15, even if you have abundance, your life does not consist of your possessions. That gun in your gun safe or under your bed or even in your hand does not constitute well-being. Good health does not constitute well-being. Because the truth is, you and I are sovereign over absolutely nothing. We control nothing. And every time we think we have control over anything, it's an illusion, it's a mirage. And you know what? That is perfectly fine. Because the only true well-being, the only real life, does not consist of anything that can be taken away from us by a person, a government, an empty bank account, or a brain tumor. True life, true well-being, consists of relationship with God. And that is exactly what the love of God guarantees you can never lose if you are His child. Not only are we not threatened by anything that the world fears, but it's much better than that. Because the benefit of being the objects of God's love goes way beyond merely protecting us from harm. The love of God makes us overcomers. It makes us conquerors. 
we overwhelmingly conquer in all these things through Him who loved us. Now how does that work? (laughs) How is it that we conquer even in the midst of the most painful things? It's because it is as we share most pervasively in the sufferings of Christ that God works most powerfully to conform us to Christ. It is through the sufferings of this present time that we are being fitted for the glory that will make those sufferings seem as nothing. It is through painful and sorrowful discipline that comes to every child of God by God's faithful hand that we come to share in His holiness and thus to know the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That is what makes us conquerors in the midst of the very greatest trials that we will ever face in this life. (laughs) So brothers and sisters, may we proclaim together with the Apostle Paul that we are convinced without a doubt that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. That's it. Thank you.